So um, what we, okay. what we talking about today? Well, let, let's do some let's do some introductions here. Well, 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 for Josh, I mean, everyone knows you and me, Alex, but yeah. Josh, current um, uh, I'm already messing this up. Current head of athlete performance at Neo Pro Coaching, professional yeah. professional cyclist for six years. U23 elite to continental to pro continental. Um, yeah, man. What else am I missing out on here? I think I get everything. Uh, yeah, pretty. Yeah. You pretty much sum, sum me up. <laughs> Josh, 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 the cyclist. Yeah. yeah full stop. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Like I said, I was racing for six years. I'd, I'd probably call it five years and then a year of kind of racing, but not really racing. So um, and then, yeah, but I've been coaching for probably long, longer than that, to be honest. So, yeah, that's my bread and butter. Anything bike cycling-wise is is me. And then also current coach of our fellow coach, Alex Sankovic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting dynamic. Yeah, I've been working with Alex for a few months now. So, you know, big, big objectives for next year in France. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's funny, like, when you say about it, because my first, uh, so I met you, uh, I met Josh, actually, in 2016 at a race that my former coach organized. So it's funny because mm-hmm. that coach got me to under 23 racing. So, like, I'm interested where you can get me. But I didn't know mm-hmm. you at that point. I just I just saw you racing. Yeah, yeah. I think I remember you saying <laughs> you, you maybe came to the bus or something. But I think it was the day I'd been in, in the break for, like, 200K. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the Queen stage. It was the Queen stage of Tour of Croatia. Like it was snowing yeah. on the top of the climb, if you remember. Yeah, I don't remember much. <laughs> yeah, I just remember. I just remember getting in the break, being in the break for two hundred k, and then having to try and get in the break the next day, and then the next day made the time cut by like two minutes. That's that's a brutal race, especially the stage I yeah. watched because. You had uh, a category, it was 230k and three and a half thousand meters of climbing in horrid weather, right? Something like that was. Um, I don't think, I don't remember the weather being too bad, actually. Maybe that was right, a really no, no, I remember it was snowing because I had oh, some Coca Cola. Yeah. I, uh, I had some Coca-Cola bottles from my mates and I was just like on that line above like a thousand meters and it was mm. just like mixing snow and rain. And I'm giving, yeah, there was a yeah. guy, there was a guy I raced uh, in Belgium with who raced for Williams Veranda. He was like, give me a Coke. I'm dying. Give me a Coke. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you can't, can't, can't be, can't be Coke in that situation. No, the most definitely. <laughs> Hey, uh, speaking of eating in cold weather, this is this is we're gonna go on tangents the whole time here. Are there any pro yeah. pro tips for? I'm riding in the winter now, and like you have these heavy gloves on, and like getting food out is a pain. Are there any tri- are there any tips or tricks there, or is it just like eh, it is what it is? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> <I'm> too- <laughs> no, <laughs> just like- yeah. For for me, I never. I'm a bit of a strange one. I didn't really. I didn't like wearing gloves, so it was. But <laughs> you know, even even in the cold, like even I mean, anything. I would say anything sort of over five degrees. Uh, yeah, over five degrees, I wouldn't wear gloves because I just didn't like the kind of feeling of gloves. So I just got used to riding with cold hands. Um, but I've definitely had those sort of situations where you're trying to get food out your pocket, you know, and your hands kind of just like doing that, trying to get 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 in the pocket. Um, so to be honest, no, 
no, there isn't really any tips. Just, just um, yeah, probably gels are easier to get in because you're just yeah. squeezing it, aren't you? But no, it's it's just one of those things. I think if you, if you can keep your hands warm, that's the biggest thing. But um, other than that, it's just you know cycling can just be grim, can't it? So just just say you're from the north of England. You're tough. Yeah, from the north of England, I'm tough. <laughs> no, but like uh, I'm basically the same as you. I just like don't wear gloves even. Like if it's below zero, then I put them on. But uh, a few days ago, I did tri- I did the five hour ride. It's zero degrees the whole day, so I didn't wear gloves. But <laughs> in terms of food, I just find that I can eat on a bike on the bike. Then I just struggle with uh, with drinking. So I mean, yesterday, like I did a five hour ride on Zwift. I had eight bottles in five hours uh, a few days ago I did also five hour ride I had three bottles and a can of coke mm. so, yeah. yeah I think That's- I think the drinking I think I, what I find myself and with, with riders is trying to stay hydrated in the cold can be difficult because you don't feel thirsty a lot of the time so yeah. you know I used to find in, in when I was racing some of the races where you would get the kind of nutrition in terms of hydration wrong would be the days where it's not that hot, you know, but it's it's still kind of, you know, well, you know, but you're still sweating and stuff like that. So it could be like 10 degrees. And you're never really like super thirsty. If anything, on the days where it's hotter, you end up being more hydrated because you're constantly searching for a drink, you know. So, you know, I used to find sometimes it's it's worth kind of, reminding yourself and reminding your teammates that in those days where it's kind of pretty cold to make sure you keep drinking I know you don't feel like you need it but you get four hours into the race and you're like oh why have my legs fallen off oh I've only drank half a bottle you know uh, I've certainly been I've been there a few times and then you go oh I've done it again you know so I used to like it's a weird one because when like I said when it's hot you're always searching for a drink so you end up being hydrated sometimes so interesting yeah, but like going to myself, I I'm the co- complete opposite. So I don't struggle in the cold. I just like I li- I like the cold, but when it gets over 25 degrees, or uh, like in Belgium, like in the, in the summer when it was re- like you know how the temperature varies there. Like one day it mm. can be 10 degrees, the next day it can be 25. So uh, on those days, I just struggle. Like a lap into a kermes, I already had like dry mouth. So it's just uh, in the in the cold. I don't have any issue. Like I can get around the race, like with four bottles. That's that's not a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. With before you jumped on, Alex, we're talking about substituting some mountain bike rides, and we're talking about your five hour Swift ride. But I find that on the on the mountain bike going out, I'll be like three hours in, and I'll be like, okay, I haven't had anything to eat, and like I think that's just something to that's like specific to mountain biking, I guess too. But yeah, eat and drink in the cold. I mean, when you mentioned Zwift, uh, I think it depends on the person. Like, I mean, yesterday I had to drink a lot, and like I, I hit the two hour, two two hour mark, and I, I I drank half a liter of Coke. But after that, I was fine. Like before that, I'd like going in, nudging into two hours, I was struggling. Then I had a break. I just had a had a wee, like went to the bathroom, walked around a bit, had some Coke, and afterwards I was fine. And then I think I drank only one bottle of uh, SIS, uh, that, um, what's it called? Not the beta field, the regular drink. Just their like electrolyte stuff, whatever. No, 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 no. It's, it has carbs in it. I just don't know like what's the full name of it. 
And then like the, the big bottle, you can buy like a kilo and a half. So uh, afterwards, I was just fine. And even in terms of food, sometimes when I do- did those big rides, I would just con- consume a lot of foods. But also yesterday, I had like three, three or four gels. So that also helps in terms of liquids. Sweet. Um, so, okay, let's, let's kick this off with some, some structure here. Um, so Josh, w- one of the things that you specialize in is, is up and coming talent. You have this wealth of knowledge to draw from and Alex being this younger guy coming through the ranks with his goals of, you know, doing this professionally. Well, he is a professional going, but continuing throughout the ranks. My, I have a question for both you guys. Josh, what are some things that you found are key now um, in like the like different from what you were doing when you were up and coming to what now you provide to, to younger athletes? And Alex, working with Josh, what's something that's been kind of a revelation for you? Um, that's a good question. I think from my perspective, when I was in the kind of under 23 or junior under 23 ranks coming up, there was much less information out there um about what you shouldn't shouldn't do um for me the biggest thing in a lot well not the biggest thing one of the biggest things is is knowing not it's knowing what not to do is is important but what i'm trying to go with this is it's the kind of the the mentorship of those riders who are coming up through the ranks and i think you know i think we spoke about something similar the other week and i think for me, the biggest thing for the young riders coming up is to remember that you're, as cliche as it sounds, you're on your journey. So you've got to be careful not to not to com- compare yourself to other riders around you too much. Obviously, you need a comparison to be able to assess where you're at, but you, you're better off some comparing yourself to yourself, where you've come, where were you last year, where were you this time of the year, all that sort of stuff. Um, because even at the, even at the, in the 23 age, a lot of riders are still developing. You know, you have young bloomers who, you know, you got the, I mean, Remco is a bit of a different story, but, you know, he's obviously was ready for the world tour at the age of 17, 18. Whereas you got, you know, guys like, uh, you know, Adam Yates didn't turn pro until he was in his, finished his third year in the 23. So his fourth year, final year in the 23 was his first year pro. You know, so everyone and look at the t- top ten in, in the USA rankings. I think so. I think it's important to sort of remember that you're on this journey; it's yours. So don't you know, and and and, and to remain in that that mindset. Don't get me wrong; you you want to progress and you need to get stronger and all that sort of stuff. But I think too many young riders get too. Um, don't want to say the word ambitious, but the they set things too high too soon. Um, and you've just got to let you let you. Not have, some people turn pro at eighteen, some will turn pro at twenty six. You know, um, and I think you're seeing that more and more now, both up, both ends. You're seeing a lot of more guys turn pro straight out of junior, which for me is an interesting one because I think you should go. You know, Tom Pickett went through the under twenty three ranks for some of the reasons, and that's worked for him. Um, and then you got guys like Alex Richardson who's turned pro came to the sport late and even Roglic as well, you know, obviously started late, but, you know, turned pro much later. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing for me. I mean, for myself, it's just like, he basically went around the block. He did the same things I'm doing. So it's just that support. I mean, like, uh, initially, like before I started working with him, I spoke to other coaches uh, and 
what I liked about like when I spoke to Josh was this basically it was a human approach. Like, I mean, I understand you as a writer and a lot. And like you said to me a few times, like over the past few months, a conversation goes a long way. It solves a lot of issues. Like if you remember when I put pressure on myself to impress the team, like with my power numbers, uh, it was just like, he just stopped me like on the spot. And just like, we had a, our, our long conversation. We spoke uh, on the phone a few times and it, and it was, it. I mean, I have to say, like I worked with a few coaches in the past and I always found that like I function best around British coaches. I don't know why. That's just funny to myself. Uh, maybe just because you're the, really directed me. Just like you told me like on the spot as it is. Like chill out. You don't need to be putting pressure on yourself. But it's again, you you went that went on that road and you made those mistakes. And uh, I don't know how Division Two racing. Well, I mean, how inside the team looks. I can see the data from like Strava or whatever, just like power files. But the power file is just like a part of the equation. I don't know how the lifestyle will look there. That was the same. Like That's why I struggled this year in Belgium because I didn't have anyone to guide me. It was just like me wondering, wondering like a nobbit, like what, what, what I'll do there. Like, I mean, you know, you know where I'm going with this. So mm. it's just like for a rider like myself and just like even younger ones than me, having guidance is important because you can really quickly go off track and just like, like bubble up in, inside like a, like a bubble of pressure and I have to do this and I have to do that. But just like Josh said, each rider has their own rate. Like Alex Richardson, he turned pro with Alpes and Phoenix when he was 30. So, and, and, he, and I remember like, there's, a, there's actually a video on YouTube of him. He took up cycling when he was 28. And by the age of 30, he was like a professional rider winning 1.1 UCI races, which is unheard of. So, uh, and he also won, I think, Jim, uh, Lincoln Grand Prix, was it? Solo, as a solo yeah, rider. Yeah. We are a team. So yeah. uh, that's like one of the oldest one-day races in the UK. So um, it just shows like everyone has their own rate of progression. And even Roglic, Roglic needed, I think it was three or four years before he came into the World Tour. Okay, it's a different story. But uh, my point is... Uh, each rider has their own timeline. It's, you can't rush through it and you just like, can't put pressure on, on yourself. I need to be by 2025. I need to be in the world tour because if you do that, like uh, I certainly did this, this myself because I said like, oh, I need to be at this point. Uh, this year, I need to be at this point. And then just like six months later, the wheels started falling off the wagon. And where, where, where was I overtrained, anemic and, you know, it's just like, Having someone with the experience to guide you and make cycling fun, uh, for me, it's it's been a game changer. So that's all I can say. I mean, no, that's huge. I think going a few things there, there's so much good information there, but being comfortable going on your own path or not even being comfortable, just going on your own path because everyone has their own path. It's unique to you. And then being able to draw from those experiences as cyclists, we get in our, we so inside of our own heads with like the emotional roller coaster, you know, up and down and up and down and you forget all the hard work you put in so quickly. So yeah, that's, that's key. Uh, There's something I wanted to ask you guys when you're talking about power numbers, um, two things within the team, how much are power numbers discussed? I'm just curious because I know like power numbers are only, they, they are important, but it's a part of the equation. And then Josh on your side um, in dealing with Alex is, is there, I know from my coaching experience, yes, data analysis, power is big, but are you guys focusing 
is it is it like 50% power is it all power like kind of how do you, how do you stress that in like a in a progression throughout his career i think you know at this point obviously um whilst we've been working with alex we haven't actually done uh proper races yet so you know he's come out of belgium had the season you know um of of cups kind of craziness from probably November point onwards because you're doing racing and all that sort of stuff. Um, so in terms of like how to actually race a bike, we probably touched on it a little bit, but it's it's pretty. I mean, you don't you can't start talking about race tactics six months out from races anyway, you know, and we don't actually know the full calendar and all that sort of stuff. So I'd say as it stands, it's kind of been a bit of you know our focus is certainly on building that engine for next year, you know, that getting a big engine going. So, um, yeah, in terms of, I like to do, in terms of like the data side and the, the actual training prescription side, I think it's, um, we can get a little bit too caught up in power numbers sometimes. They're very important. Um, but depending on the rider and someone like Alex, who's quite in tune with himself and he knows, you know, he's good with his sensations and, there's always a fine line between am I just tired from training and I need to crack on or is there something else going on here? Um, but as Alex will know now, by now we do a lot of our sort of endurance training is to heart rate because, you know, that is the true internal response, you know, you know the actual stimulus, you know, that's going on, um, which I think has been lost a little bit in previous years when training with power meter books came out and all this sort of stuff. And then you could do, TSS came out and all this stuff and it's all power derived which is important but you can if you go too far down that path you can kind of get lost in what actually is it like to feel how does it how do you feel as an athlete and what is actually going on um so um I'm not sure if I'm really answering the question here but I think you know percentage wise it's, it's probably you know uh as as the, the winter goes on we become more the percentage of how much we work to power increases because we want the specifics and the numbers and all that sort of stuff. Um, as it stands though, a lot of our work is, is in the gym, um, you know, doing zone two stuff to, to heart rate, but even, even to feel really, you know, ride with what feels like zone two, what does that feel like to you? Cause, cause someone like Alex knows what it should feel like, you know, a lot of amateur riders can go, ride to what feels like zone two and they'll just go out and smash it. And they go, oh yeah, it felt great. <laughs> it's like, no, you're not actually, okay. So then those sort of riders, I might have to give some specific, real specific stuff to go, no, this is what, you know, what you can do, I find is you can use power, using power and power meters and heart rate monitors to improve how you ride to feel. Do you know what I mean? So you can go, you, I want you to ride to this power for a bit and this heart rate. Now, how does that feel? Now I want you to, to ride to feel because you know what it should feel like. You know, so if you can do it that way around, it can actually benefit how riders can, you know, listen to the body and, and, and understand how they're feeling. So um, yeah, probably went on a tangent there, but that's kind of where the thought process is at the minute. But in terms of racing wise, it's not, you know, it's it's a few few uh, lines down the list of our conversation as it stands with so far out from races. You know, that's, that's great. And what I'm thinking of in regards to feel too is in, I'm thinking for amateurs, there's so much of 
always more is more, you know, like I want to ride longer. I want to ride harder. And I'm sure that that's just amplified when you have guys going for contracts and for positions at races. So using that feel, using those power numbers, people can dial in like, Hey, this is what it feels like to ride for four hours at whatever, 80%, 75%. And then what the fatigue is like afterwards. And like you said, Alex is in touch with that. So knowing that you're planning for the next day, the next week, the next month, the next block, it all compounds on itself. Yeah. And I think also just to, I remember there was another part of the question about how often do you talk about power in the, within a team? And I think it is certainly something that, you know, I found as I, as the years went on in my five, six years of racing, it became more like you would talk about it more because then everyone's got power meters. Like if you don't have a power meter now, it's like, who even are you? Sort of thing. You know, it's, it's crazy. So um, it's like, I think there was a, there was a point when I think um, I must have been 2013 was my first year uh, riding UCI team and they gave us power meters. So, um, and up to that point, I didn't really have one. I had one at some point, but, you know, didn't really know what was more sort of my numbers were or anything. And there was big conversations that winter about, oh, what was your, what was your test? What was this? What was that? What was that? You know, it was, oh, you're going to be smashing it next year. Um, to what particular rider, I won't name his name. But then we got to the first races and it was actually the guys who had the, in, in the middle, really, that were, were, were performing. So I think there's, a, there's definitely more of a, now people, most riders kind of have a good idea of what power is and what is actually required. Um, and sometimes it's like, you can't, you can go, oh, I've got an FTP of this, or I can do this for five minutes. It's like, well, what results do you have? You know, so I think it has to be then, how do you race a bike? That's when that conversation comes in. What you do, and, how, and the biggest thing for me in, the, in racing is the higher the level you get, the more important positioning becomes. You know, so especially in Belgium, as Alex will know, go into cobble sections and it's actually the, the, the section into the cobbles and the section after the cobbles, which is hard, you know, in, te- in terms of intensity, when you're actually on the cobbles, everyone's just, going, everyone's just going the same speed. Um, you're almost getting a bit of a rest, like not really, but, you know, you know that if you get to the cobbles first, your life's going to be so much easier for the next 15 minutes. Um so it's sort of like after the cobbles, it's always lined out. So you're almost preempting the intensity that's coming up, but yeah, that'll be less if you go harder before. <clears throat> I mean, from my point of view, just like uh, it depends on the country you race in. Also, I mean, the fr- French are a bit weird, like just from my current experience, because a lot of them, like my DS openly admitted, I don't understand power data at all. He just like knows what he reads and that's about it. I mean, uh, they're still fairly old school, as Josh probably also know, knows more than me. Uh, and uh, But yeah, riders do discuss it. But I mean, I've seen riders who had lower power numbers, as Josh said, and they were like winning races and while, while I was getting dropped at two and a half hours in. So uh, it, it, at the end of the day, power just, just shows a part of the picture. And like, I feel like one want to, to look at the, the level I'll be racing at next year. Most of the guys go directly world tour from the, uh, the level I'm racing next year. Uh, but you have riders who are not as strong as that, but still winning races there. So it's just a part of the picture. And I think you also need to be, uh, racecraft also pay, plays an equation here. 
You need to be uh, fo- foxy enough and just like think how you race. As uh, Josh mentioned, uh, for Belgium, I mean, Belgium is a we- such a weird place, especially for foreigners, because you don't know what you're getting yourself into until you're actually there. I mean, me and him had a conversation. You remember that the reach of that chat we had. <laughs> so yeah. uh, there's a thing, there's a, an actual thing called in Belgium, the reach of that, which is on the middle of the road, like when uh, the, the the roads there vary a lot. So if you have cobbles, you can have concrete, you can have asphalt. Usually they're like concrete plates and then you have like a gap like this big and it can be a few centimeters deep. And if your tire falls, then you're going to crash. So my first experience of that was uh, we were lined out at 60k per hour and my back wheel started sliding and I see I saw guys bunny hopping in front of me and I was like thinking why are you bunny hopping at 60k per hour until my back wheel started sliding and I nearly bend it at 60k per hour oh that's why <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's uh, you really like you really need to pay attention how you're positioned especially in a country like Belgium or, or uh, Holland also like where there's a lot of road furniture and People just people just think like, oh, I need to be strong on the cobbles, like he, he said. But if you are in a good position before the cobbles, riding over the cobbles is easy. Anyone can do that. I mean, if, it, if we're talking Paris-Roubaix, that's a different ball game. But uh, Flemish cobbles are easy to ride over if you're in a decent position. Because the faster you go, the easier it is. The slower you go, the harder it is, the more the bike will uh, bounce underneath you. How much time then, even to simplify that even more, Alex, if people tend to, to, to stress just being just time on the bike and power numbers, you know, like what can I do? But like, speaking of racecraft, positioning, um, all of that, how much time do you spend then? I know we haven't gone into the races yet, but how much time will you spend maybe watching videos or reconning courses or talking to Josh about this? A lot, but I'll, I'll just have to, I just have to add in a few things also to the into the thing you mentioned in the beginning. Uh, I would say Josh isn't so power driven. I mean, just like from like my current experience with him, and it as I, it's actually refreshing training to hard straight again because the last time I trained to hard straight was five or six years ago. So it's been it's been quite refreshing. And because you remember in the beginning, I was just like, oh, this doesn't feel right. I should, I should ride to power. I, like, why, why am I looking at heart rate? But then again, just like, uh, I don't know, just like felt more fun, to be fair. And just like I was enjo- I'm enjoying riding more because I'm just like not staring in a metric. Uh, with heart rate, I know how my body feels. And I know how, uh, like on Saturday, I had like a chain tight, right? Chain tight is basically upper zone two into tempo. So I know how that feels, that it feels uncomfortable. It's, uh, it's grippy, but it's not too hard that you're dying. And I didn't even have to look at my hardship or power. I just knew I'm in the zone, but I feel how my body felt, you know. And at the end of the ride, I just like, checked my power. Oh, I was actually only five watts off from what he prescribed. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think, sorry. No, carry on. Uh, I just think like people should maybe maybe incorporate more a more let feel aspect i mean power numbers do show some a part of the picture but at the end of the day like uh i've seen a lot of riders including myself like in the first 10 15 minutes a half an hour of your training session you you just feel horrible and you just been a talk but like maybe an hour in you just like open up and uh you're you're gonna like set power records at the end of the day 
I just, and you, you just need to also sometimes push everything aside and just like write what feels comfortable and then see what happens like later on in the ride. But it's just like we're in a, we're in a time, like the day and age that just like everything is metric driven. So yeah, I mean, for me, it was a refreshing training to heart rate again and just like that, like uh, I can express my feel how my body feels, not just like what the power meter shows. Yeah. I think what's important maybe to point out though is that although we're not riding just to a power number because this obviously it's it's individual so for Alex he knows his body very well so and he can kind of he knows what heart rate is, is to compared to a sensation what it might mean is it is he just fresh is he this or is he that so we can be a little bit more kind of almost rides what feels like that was on too like we were saying but I think even when we're doing that we're still tracking everything you know so power's power's still there it's still being recorded we're still analysing it afterwards we're still looking at the trend in for example efficiency factor over over the you know phases of the winter and stuff like that so it's still a very important metric um, even in this this phase like I said as the winter goes on and you get closer to races there will be more percentage into specific power numbers for, for, for obvious reasons. But um, it is, like I was saying, he's found it quite refreshing. I've seen it a lot where we get a rider to ride to, uh, more so in this kind of zone two style, you know, endurance training. You ride in, in, the, in heart rate zone two, and they almost find it a little bit easier to be smooth with it and keep it controlled because, you know, you go down a little descent and then people start panicking and start trying to get their average power back up, you know? And I always say, it's not about average power for the, for the endurance ride. It's about how much time and zone we're getting, you know? And first off, first off, I want to see good time and zone in the heart rate zone. And then uh, what you t- tend to find is um, as the, as the sort of aerobic engine efficiency starts to improve, whatever, if you've got your power meters, obviously your power zones are set to a certain point, they start to catch up anyway, you know? So they'll start to match up. And then if they, if they start to go the opposite way where, you know, you're doing heart rate zone two and the power's really high, then you probably need to retest anyway. So I think it's just maybe pointing out that everything's being recorded, even if it's not being stared at on the day. You know, we're still looking at everything in the background. But what this does is it stops you just becoming a, a robot staring at a computer all the time. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, also, pe- also people like... Uh, when they look at someone like doing what I'm doing, uh, they tend to forget that me and you are not focusing on what I'm doing in the first 20 minutes of a ride is what happens after two hours in a race. Like to be fair, fatigue resistance and this level of racing is everything. Like if you cannot, if you cannot get closer to your threshold after five hours, I mean, it's just, uh, I spoke to, I spoke to a mate uh, yesterday evening and I just like said, because we were talking about a certain rider who's really strong. Uh, while that person can do six watts per kilo four times in the beginning of a ride, what the, that doesn't matter in the end, like if you cannot produce the same power four hours. And- you know, that's something no. I, wanted, I wanted to touch on there was fatigue resistance. I know that's big on the NeoPro site. And I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. my, I'm assuming for amateur cycling, it's big. And for professional cycling, it's even bigger. How much do you guys work on that? And is, is there an emphasis on that? A lot. I have it tomorrow. 
Yeah, I think obviously um, it's probably around this point now where we'll start to put more emphasis on it. Um, I mean, you, you can't just start doing fatigue resistance training before you can even do anything without being fatigued. <laughs> you know, so when we talk about fatigue resistance and this, this sort of point now is what can you do fatigued, you know, um, rather than the resistance to the fatigue. So there's two different aspects to it, but it's, for me, it is the biggest thing that people don't do that I notice. You know, so when when I get new new athletes in and I look at the data, the biggest thing that's generally missing is they're not training, they're not doing efforts at the end of rides, um, and the, the biggest reason is I think is because it's not good for the ego. So yeah. you know, you, you you almost need, and I have it on WKO five a completely different set of numbers and power duration curve after two thousand kilojoules, after three thousand kilojoules. And that obviously then depends. The kilojoules that we uh, design the chart for depends on what races they're doing. So for Alex, it'll be, I think anything, it's got to be at least past 2,500 kilojoules um, is, is where the race is going to be won, you know? So uh, before that point, I think it, the emphasis becomes more on fatigue resistance, the higher level and the longer races you get. You know, there's a certain element of fatigue resistance even within an hour crit, but it's not that difficult to sort of, you you're not that fatigued um after an hour of, tr- of, of even hard intent it's a different kind of fatigue oh think of uh you're good you're back yeah. yeah um so yeah anyway um i think there's definitely a, a big emphasis on it and i think like alex was saying you get riders who've got big power numbers but what can you do fatigued that's more important you know if, if your power is really low, yeah, start start from the basics. You need to just improve your power and your efficiency, all that sort of stuff. But you see riders who can do six watts per kilo for 20 minutes, but then you look and go, what's their best ever power after two and a half thousand kilojoules? And it'll be 5.4, you know, and you go, well, that's why you're not winning the race. It's not because, they're like, oh, I need to go to 6.2. It's like, no, you don't. You need to get your fatigued power Let's, if it was for 20 minutes, I'd probably say three to four or five minutes is, is more important. But um, you're better off getting your, your, your fatigue power up to 5.6 that, because that's enough to win, you know, a lot of the time. Whereas getting your, your fresh power up to 6.2 and not improving your fatigue power, all that's going to do is mean you're going to be in a, uh, a group further forward in the first hour of the race. You know, and as, as you know, as Alex knows, it very rarely is decisive that early on. You know, as long as you're still in the race in that first half, you're fine. You know, you don't have to be at the front. I've had, when I was racing, the amount of times I, I've been out the back on a, an early climb, you know, got back on and finished in the top 10, I've lost count, you know, because I've done the same power that I did in the first hour. Same, I remember there was a race in the UK and it was a, I think it was a four minute climb and it went up the climb after about 2K and it went, I did like five watts off a of PB. And I was probably third group, you know, like 10 guys, 10 guys, 10 guys. So it wasn't bad, but, you know, I was nowhere near the front group. We got back on and then I looked at the file and, the, and in the last lap, I made the front group of 10 and I did less power than I did the first time up the climb. So, I, so you know, Tour Britain, I remember the same Tour Britain, there was a stage in 20, what it been, 2015. And I didn't, I did something... It was late on in the race, like 180k stage, really hilly all day, but nothing hard, just like constant, constant, constant. So everyone was on the knees. And I, I say only, I only had to do six spots per kilo for about six minutes 
to make the front group in a 1.8 C race. You know, it was like 25 guys. And when you think about it, most, most a lot of amateurs can do that for five minutes, six minutes. So it's like, it's, that's not, it's not the issue that you haven't got enough power for a lot of guys. It's where, how is that power? When is that power being accessible? You know, can you access it after draining your anaerobic battery all day? Now, what can you do? Because that's when the race is won. You know, um, if you've got no power at all, you're going to lose the race early on. But if you've got, as long as you stay in the race, what can you do fatigued? That is the most important thing to win bike races. And you know, what's interesting there is that, it, like you said, it's not a very sexy workout. It isn't a sexy workout. No. But if everyone talks about, you know, like, to, like FTP and then they want to know what races have you won. But the the two like are they're they're kind of separate, right? They are. It's like to to win the race. Yes, certain races you want that high FTP, but you you need to be able to put out power at the end of the race. And it's like that's not those aren't the numbers that people want to talk about. You know, um, okay. it's just it's just interesting there that it's it's there's kind of different paths uh, of of getting the wins and getting the FTP. But whatever, this is a weird tangent. I now, mean, to be, fa- <laughs> to be to, sorry, to be fair, like to get around the pro race, you don't need to be stupidly strong just to get around the pro race. But getting around a pro race and competing in the end, like Josh said, are two different things. So, I mean, I've been lost in that situation when I was dropped on the first climb in just like third or fourth group because a team decided to split it up in the beginning, like guys going nuclear and going, doing seven watts per kilo for five minutes you still made it on and still survived the race. It's just like, mm. uh, there's more and more. I saw this, I saw this with a guy, uh, like last year, I think he raced for a French team. He had stupidly high numbers, just like seven and seven and a half Watts per kilo, 6.3 threshold, something like that. But an hour into a race, he, the guy was gone. I mean, it's like I said, fatigue resistance is everything, especially at this level. And uh, just to get around like a UCI 1.2 race, you don't need a high threshold. I know guys who got around with a four and a half watts per kilo threshold. So it's just, uh, they can get close to their threshold at the, at the end of a race. I mean, it's not, it's not that difficult. And then also breaking that down even further, going back to what we were talking about earlier with racecraft and positioning, you train this fatigue resistance, but if you can, burn less kilojoules in the first two hours, you know, then you even got more in the bank for the, for the end of the mm. race, you know, I'm saying it all works together. Yeah. I think obviously there's, there's, there's so many elements to it. And like we, we talk about fatigue resistance is, is the most important thing, but there's also then how are you traveling to get to that part of the race, you know, and that comes to, you can talk about it from a physiological perspective. How efficient are you? You know, how's your aerobic system, uh, clearing lactate and shuttling it and reusing it as fuel and that's all that sort of you know that sort of stuff yeah um without that there's a you're not the thing is without that you're not going to be able to do power fatigue you know because you're not efficient through the, the point of getting fatigued so even though you, you you're creating fatigue but your body is reusing that lactate and, and, and all that sort of stuff and you're very efficient you know and there's a big thing on, on pagacha or pudjika whatever you call him where he is so efficient that it's not that he has, well, he's got big power, don't get me wrong, but it's that he's, because he's traveling through the race so efficiently, it's like he's almost fresh at the end, you know? So if you can do that, then it's easy to produce the power that you can do, you know? So there's also, you can look at it that way. It's like, if you can just make yourself really efficient and you can produce the power at the end. But then there's also the actual sort of kind of straightforward point of, 
performing when you're tired, you know. Uh, I remember there was, there's, a, there's a pro that I know and he's like, if I feel like I'm about to blow at the end of a race, I just attack, you know, and see what happens. And you because you find like, you see it, you see attacks, we used to call it attack before you blow. And it's kind of like, I've done it before and then it works because if you're on your knees, the chances are everyone's on the knees. Um, anyway, I'm just gonna, I don't know where I got on a tangent there. Lost, lost myself there, but yeah. Um, yeah, loads of elements to it, but fatigue resistance is, is really key. But then also, like I said, it, racecraft comes in, I'm trying to come up with a name for it, like efficiency of movement or something, where it's like your efficiency physiologically is one thing, but how is your efficiency of how you're actually riding through a race? You know, you used to see like sprinters are quite good at it because they've had to become, the gym and they've not got big FTPs, big engines a lot of the time. So they learn from a young age to travel through races smart. They'll ride through the middle of the bunt travel and go up the outside, you know, and they'll shoulder barge people. You do all these things over a four-hour race and you'll save yourself so much energy. So that's a big, you know, and going back to the kind of the, the young riders going through, it's, it's the biggest thing you find. that uh, What I find is, and me, me myself actually, was when I first started, I wasn't very strong. So I was forced to learn how to be smart. You know, not getting a break, I wouldn't do any turn. I'd do like one turn every five minutes because I couldn't, you know. But because of doing that, when I did get strong, I was used to riding efficiently and getting to the end of races. So, you know, you, you often find that the guys that are not naturally so strong in the beginning actually learn how to race better, you know, which is an interesting... I mean, it's also mental. It's also very mental because... Uh... I mean, how, how can I put this? Like you, you basically hit it on the head. Like one is movement through the group. One is like the physical side, but just like a place like Holland or Belgium t- teaches you a lot about, about that. Just like I, I saw how bad I am actually at bike handling when, when I came to Belgium, when I thought I'm, I'm half decent and I saw guys shredding corners at 50 K per hour. That was a real experience. How could you, how you, that I got from, 10th wheel to 50th in one corner. Just like that taught me a lot how to position myself and just how to move up and uh, how to actually be comfortable in a bunch. And I still do the same mistakes to, to this day. Uh, I mean, like you said, sprinters are really, are, are really, really handy, you know. So they're, they're, they will easily move up through the bunch while, whilst I will try to go on the outside, even if, even if mm. that's not, not the most efficient thing. And I can make, share an example of this. I have a mate, um, Josh, you maybe remember, I mentioned to him in the previous podcast, the guy with the burnout. Yep. Uh, so he was, a, he was a pure sprinter and we compared power data a few times. And I always had like 25, 30 watts more than him on average power because he was so efficient through the bunch. And I was just like that idiot moving up on the, on the side and just burning matches. But over the course of a race, you do this once, f- twice, 10 times, 15 times, that adds up. That adds up big time. Yeah, I think there's, there's there's obviously times where you have no choice and you've got to go up the outside, um, and it helps if you've got teammates in that situation. But what I found is a strange piece of advice, though, is that sprinters don't use the brakes as much as everyone else. <laughs> you know, That's they very, don't, very true. They don't. And I I used to find like you when you're going into a corner if you use your brakes less and almost back off before the corner, then accelerate into the corner and go around the corner, you come out the corner faster, you save yourself so much energy 
you know, and it's little things like that, especially in Belgium when there's so many corners, so many corners. Yeah. If you're having to do a full sprint out of every single corner, that's going to add up, you know, obviously. Okay. Um, but if you can, you find like you, you see a lot of sprinters. I remember Ed Clancy in the crits in the UK, he was really good at it. And I think because you come from a track background, you get good at not using brakes because you don't have any brakes. Um, and he used to do where he'd go around the corners, like it was just, he'd be barging into people, you know, as he's going, people <laughs> slamming on. And he'd, but he'd go, through, he'd go through the gap or something like that, you know. And then he'd come out the corner and he's going 4K an hour quicker than everyone else. So he just like cruises out around the corner, you know. So, you know, it's not, uh, it's, this is not advice, but something I used to do is, is not break as much, you know. I mean, I mean, Imon Lucas, so I don't know if you know him, Josh knows him. So uh, we trained together in Belgium. So I was really struggling with, with my cornering at that time. He, we would just like ride through... Through a uh, through a town center, and he would scream, scream at me, "Don't touch the brakes, even if you hit a car in front of you." <laughs> but it, it helps. But I mean, going back to this, I, I raced against JLT Condor, so they had like at that time Tom Moses and uh, Moldy John Mold. So John Mold is like is, re- is a really good sprinter and a former trackie also. Um, they they came to Croatia and did the spring races, and those guys didn't even touch the brakes like through the corners. Like there was literally a roundabout going into a tight right or left hander, and I don't remember all of us touched the brakes and then just the whole JLT train just like flew by us. Like they, they yeah. didn't even touch the brakes just because like uh, a lot of them are trackies and uh, like you have your uh, tour series, those circuit races that help. Yeah. Out. I'd say that's probably the big, the biggest thing is the tour series over here. They're really narrow. They're almost like cyclocross races, but on tarmac, you know, so if you can't go around a corner fast, there's absolutely no chance you're even staying in the group. You know, so you learn pretty quick. It's, you get some guys coming from New Zealand and stuff, and they go to the first tour series, and they can't believe what's going on. You know, like it's it's pretty normal to do a tour series with 50 psi in in, in the tires. You know, it's, it's a very normal thing. And then obviously, I think in the UK because we get a lot of rain, you just naturally get good at riding in the rain, so you understand the grip of your tire and all that sort of stuff. But as soon as you touch the brakes, well, you should never touch the brakes on a corner ever. You know, that's that's hundred. Just never, never, ever. You know, break before the corner, but on the corner as you're, you know, you're leaning in. It's only going to end in one thing. You're going to slide out or something. You know. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, the JLT guys, obviously, they they smashed up the tour series for a couple of years. So, and you know, I know Moldy and, and Moses quite well. So, you know, they know how to go around corners, and it makes a massive difference. You see, I used to find you go to Spain and you could move up on the descent without even trying, you know, it's crazy. But then you go, it depends where, it depends where you go, you know. Um, the French like to switch a lot. They go left, right without even saying anything. The Belgians are crazy, but they tend to be good bike handling. They're good at, they're good at handling the bike, even though it's crazy. Um, and then, like I said, France, the French is just the way of riding is, it's okay not to say that you're about to turn left on someone. You know, you, you put someone almost off the road and it's like, oh, it's just normal. You know, uh, and then you go to Spain, and everyone just lets you pass because I oh, would just wait for the climb. You know, tranquilo. <laughs> yeah, that's the saying about Spain. Like you're going to noodle on the flats, and then you're going to go nuclear power on the climb. Yeah, but it doesn't matter as much in Spain because the selection's always on the long climbs anyway. So yeah, there's not there's, there's less emphasis on that positioning. It depends. If you go to the Basque Country and it's real narrow climbs, and there's a little bit of emphasis on getting in position for the climb but it's still it's still not 
I think I've lost. I think my phone batteries keeps going. Um, there's still not as much emphasis as, as in Belgium where everybody knows it's really important. I mean, also, like, when you say tire pressure, um, this, is, this is a funny thing in Belgium. Like, when you speak to riders, they'll just say, like, oh, I put 110 PSI in my tires on those, on those roads. Yeah. Like, that's, that's mental. And then, I'm, then you find me riding at 70 PSI. It's just like, oh, I mean... Belgium is an experience on its own just because they're so good bike handlers. But again, like you said, they're crazy. They're going to pull moves on you like that you can't imagine. And especially like when you do uh, East Flemish races are okay, but West Flanders, that's a different beast. Like at, at least from my experience, I saw a rider like um, he basically, what's the expression? Um, he went on the inside line on the corner. I, I, there's an English expression. I just can't think of it now. Um he basically went on the inside on the on the corner and then basically we came onto a flat and the guy who was cut off on the inside basically tried to knock off the guy into a ditch because like he felt he felt that he was endangered and i mean they're just they're just mental and especially towards foreigners you can find yourself in a situation like that really quickly yeah i wanted to talk about tire pressure and tech a little bit when you guys are talking about these corners Josh, has that changed at all? Or I'm saying from like whatever, you know, eight, 10 years ago, were you, were you bringing that pressure down a little bit? Or was it always like, I think when I think of old school mentality, it was like 110, 120 PSI, right? No, yeah, the, the tire pressure has definitely gone down. Um, I think because more, they've done, they've done some good studies on it and realized that, you know, riding around, Obviously, you've got wider tires now as well. So you, most World Tour guys are riding 28s now. You know, not just like no matter what because they're not slower. You know, it's not that they're faster or thing, but they're not slower and you get way more grip But because they're bigger and, and there's tubeless, which means you can run even lower. So basically, the idea is the lower PSI, obviously, the more grip you have. So you get that as low as possible before you start losing speed. Um, but yeah, when I was, I remember going to Belgium as a junior, and, you know, I was like 60 kilo, but the mechanics put 110 PSI in. And I'm like, why am I like, feels like I'm just, every, can feel every little bump in the road. I just thought it was the fastest because it felt faster. You know, it does, you go down to 70 PSI and it feels like you're dragging. So it feels slow, but it's actually not slower. So once you can get your head around that, no, you're not actually going slower and you go, can go around the corners quicker, then, you know, it's an easy, easy advantage. But now, Everyone's everyone's doing it now, so it's not an advantage anymore. It's a disadvantage if you're not doing it. So um, it's definitely uh, quite obviously, you know, that it's come. The tire pressures have, have come down. I don't know anyone who rides over 100 psi anymore. I mean, you still find them, and there's still a, a lot of like old school antics and cycling. Uh, I mean, you you probably remember this, like 130 psi on tubs. Mm. So I mean, yeah. I saw I saw a lot of things, like especially in Belgium, like they they. A lot of guys still stuck like 110 in and just like on tubs. But then then again, like there is that like, I would say there's a 50-50 split now. Guys who are really like investing in equipment and trying to gain that. Because at the end of the day, like a clincher tire, I still feel in some cases it's better than a tub. Just because with tubs you have a lot more work, even if tubs feel nicer. But if you see sometimes on the roads that I raced on, uh, Josh, you know how they look. So, I think a clincher tire with seventy psi is a lot better than running tubs at one hundred and ten. Yeah, I can't imagine now. 
if I had a 21 mil tire, 120 psi, and I looked down, I'd I'd be like confidence gone. I don't know how how I used to I don't know how I used to do it. You know, anything less than 25 mil feels too narrow. Yeah, I mean, I I, I have yet to try 28, but I'm I would be actually keen how, like how that would be in a Kermes because like uh, the road surface changes so quickly there. Like if you're not like if you're not paying attention, we can like slide out on a corner super easily, especially when it's wet. Mm. Yeah. Um, changing gears here a little bit, I want to talk about travel. So, Alex, you're going to France. When 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 are you going to France? I'm going first to Spain on the fifth of January, spending okay. five and a half weeks in Spain. Then traveling to France to do two preseason, let's call them preseason races. This is basically the two the two biggest one day races in uh, the south of France. Uh, and then uh, we're going actually back to Spain for a team camp, and then doing some racing in in Spain and back to France for the rest of the year. So basically from the fifth after after the new year, I'm leaving. So I know you and I have had many conversations and we've talked about, you're doing a lot of traveling anyways for the races and training, but now going into this though, and and working with Josh, are there any specific things that you guys discuss or questions you have for him to draw off of his, his knowledge in traveling and training and racing? Yeah. He basically taught me to be more relaxed, even like now with the winter, I was like super anxious when I saw like when that he gave me a rest day on the day I traveled and on the, the day I came home uh, because there was a point uh, I went uh, to one of my mates wedding a few weeks ago and I had like four days off and but he just like told me just relax it's fine if you have a day off you know but uh I'm quite comfortable with travel. I mean, I did it enough to, to, to know how to get around it. There are like pitfalls, I mean pitfalls, there are traps that you can fall into while doing it the first time. I'd say one of the, one of, one of the signs I do pay attention is sometimes it's, it's very stressful and you, you can feel fatigue after like even a day, two, three after, after you arrive to a destination. Like th- when I came to Belgium this year, I was tired for the next three days basically just because of the stress like it was COVID like you didn't know how we're going to get in the country if you didn't know how the connections will be with the trains you didn't know who will pick you up you know so it's uh, I would say the only thing that sets me off maybe is just that stress of unknown Josh is there anything specific that um I mean, you, you have so much travel knowledge and training and racing going all over. Is there anything that has, what, what are some key things for traveling and has anything changed over the years that you recommend or? Uh, I think the biggest thing, well, two things come to mind is travel day is not a rest day. First off, you know, uh, even though you kind of sat down pretty much all the time, it's not a rest day. There's so much, it's, I used to get really hungry on travel days. I think it's like, it's kind of like a stress that you don't realize is there because you're always thinking, oh, I've got to be here now in a minute. I've got, then I've got to go to that, you know, uh, terminal. Then I've got to do this and I've got to get on the plane. I've got to do... So all of a sudden it's like, you're not resting at all. So I think that's the, the first thing. And that's, you know, sometimes, a lot of the time it's kind of, because of that, it, it's not, that it's not, so not a rest day, but it's also when you go into the airport, especially, it's a hot spot for people who are sick. 
you know? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing for me is to do whatever you can to avoid getting sick. So hand sanitizer was always in my pocket from, you know, once we turned, like in the early days, I didn't really know. And he's always get sick after traveling. Uh, and it's because, you know, because you're training so hard as an athlete, you, you generally got your immune system's a little bit suppressed. So, you know, if you are someone who's quite susceptible to getting colds, you might even go a bit further and go, right, I don't even have a rest day before the travel and an easy day after the travel. And you might as well, you know, do it that way just to be safe. So many times you see guys getting ill from traveling. It can be easily avoided, you know, keep your hands clean, even wear a mask. You know, I remember Steel Von Hoff, who we used to ride with, uh, and he would he had a real crazy setup. He had a, a mask on. He had, uh, had a used to sore neck from traveling, so he used to get this, like, elastic band around his forehead and attach it to the back of his uh, airplane seat. So he'd just be like, you know, just like that all the time. So, but anyway, that's, that's something else entirely. But I think, you know, doing whatever you can to not get sick on that travel day. Um, and then, I, again, it's not a rest day. So the day after, don't think, right, I've just had a day off. So I'm going to go and do five hours because now I'm in Spain or whatever it is, you know, right into it nice and steady because that needs to be a generally a day where you feel better the day after. So, you know, it might not be a full the day you get to Spain, for example, it's not going to be a full day off, but it's certainly be an easy, an easy ride. Yeah, I mean, just like for me, like you said, I don't get hungry. I'm more, I'm, my appetite gets suppressed, but I do feel a lot more thirstier. So I have to drink a lot. Just like then my stomach feels queasy on travel day. But like going back to sickness, I actually did end up getting sick after my travel to my mate's wedding. Um, and uh, then I, I actually made the mistake of not telling him, I am, Hey, I'm actually, I actually have a chest call. Like, uh, and then like, we had a discussion a few days later, mm-hmm. like, you need to tell me those things, like when it happens, actually, I thought it's just like, it's going to be away in a few days. And then I had it for 10 days nearly. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta be careful. I mean, sometimes there's nothing you can do. You can be as sensible and smart as possible and you still get sick, you know? Yeah. Um, but then that's, then again, that's going into another subject where when you do get sick, don't just ride through. I think the thing is people get a cold and they ride through and sometimes you get away with it. Um, and that's, that's basically the issue is that sometimes you get away with it. But I feel like when you do that, you play in the roulette, you know, you might get lucky and we had to ride through it. Chances are you're going to get sick. And, but even when you, there's an argument to say, even if you do ride whilst you're sick, your body's fighting something else anyway. So are you really going to get the true adaptations from your training? Um, you're probably just at best probably just maintaining. So you're better off just cutting your losses, take a few days off, start the next block, fresh, ready to go, 100% healthy. I mean, you know, we're always walking on a, knife, on a knife's edge. So basically, you're like yeah. constantly just like through the year, you're on eggshells, like uh, what will happen? Like, am I um, healthy? Because like what is actually healthy for um, like an athlete? You, you don't know. I mean, it's so easy to get sick. But like the most thing, the, like the best advice I can give to someone with traveling, just be relaxed on that day. Like even if you need an extra day or two off, I think I mentioned this in the first, first podcast I did. Uh, I wanted to race like after I arrived in Belgium this year, I was so anxious, just like the next day to get going, but I was destroyed. I was like literally destroyed. And my mate Fraser just like said, let's just, let's just go on a coffee spin. And that was basically it, you know? So uh, yeah, I mean, it's just... It's uh, just being relaxed and um, 
taking it easy. If you need, if you need an extra day off, or fine. Better an extra day off than being sick or being knackered for the next 10 days. Well, I'm just, my battery's low, so I've just had to plug myself in. We're going to, um, I've, I've, I've kept you guys here for an hour, so we're going to call it, but I got, I got one last thing for you guys. And I want to start off with Alex. Alex, what's the best piece of advice that you've gotten from Josh? What's the best piece of advice? A conversation can go a long way and be relaxed. And what do you mean by that? I mean, it's so easy to, like I said, to bubble up and just like even hide things from your coach. I mean, at the end of the day, he's here to help, you know? And that's the same I'm doing with my athletes. I'm here to help you achieve your goals. And uh, uh, just like he's, he's here to help me with his experience to reach my goals. Like, I mean, yeah, my dream is to go into the world tour. Will I get there? We don't know. But uh, it's, he's here just to help me make my journey a lot more pleasant because while, yeah, I do have the knowledge to like self-coach, but I'll never, never self-coach myself that well because I'll only see the things that I want to see with him here. He like told me, he'll tell me directly, like we need to do X, Y, and Z for you to be competitive. You know? I like that, man. That's really good. Only see the things that you want. I, I, that, that makes total sense. That's the thing. You don't see the big picture. You only see your own yeah. picture. Yeah. Um, and then Josh, what do you think is one of the biggest things for amateurs? What's something different between pros and amateurs that amateurs should be working on? Um, I think the biggest thing that maybe coming from a different angle is the biggest thing I see from pros that I don't see from amateurs is the ability to not let the bad days mean too much, you know? So, um, I call. I did a video on it a while back, and I called it the "It Is What It Is" uh, mindset. And actually, I think me and Alex had the conversation when he was doing some some testing in the early winter. So obviously, in the early winter testing, you're not going to see or not expect to feel amazing. Um, but it's more about that you can only do what you can do, and that is a fact. You know, so as long as you give 100 percent on that, that day, then you know that's all you can control. Control that you give 100 percent, and if it's a bad day. It's a bad day. And I see, uh, I've, you know, I coach a couple of guys who are pro one world soul guy. And he, the biggest thing I see from him is if he has a bad day and I'm like, oh, is everything okay? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's fine. We'll just see how we are tomorrow. Just brushes it off, you know, really easy. And it's like, obviously, he's learned that along the way, but it's, it doesn't take any stress out of him. You know, it's not going round around his head. Oh, as the training working? As, as, am I starting to go downhill? Am I going to be ready for this? It's just, it is just a bad day. Okay, let's see how we are tomorrow. If we're bad again for four days in a row, okay, maybe there's maybe I'm sick or whatever. But that, that conversation is is for another time. One day at a time, you know. Oh, it's just a bad day. I think it's just that's the biggest piece of advice is that if you just have one of those days that's not happening, just accept it for what it is. Try again another day, you know. So that's probably the biggest thing I'd say. I think that's great advice. I think that's yeah, universally. I, mean, I, would, I think that's great life would, advice. I would just like yeah. add one, th- one thing that like also for another thing that I learned from him is just like, I'm much less metric obsessed while training now. I just like, again, like I have, I have to like, like put another person into this. So a few months ago, um, Tim Ribble Welltide from the UK actually came to Slovenia to the tour of Slovenia. And uh, a guy called Colin Sturgis, ex-world champion on the track. He dragged me along with him because he needed a Swanee. 
And uh, just like being around guys like Colin and Josh, just like be, Colin is also a coach and a DS, um, they're not made metric obsession. And that's just like people like this around me made me fall back in love with cycling. That's just for the pure riding of it, you know, because like the last two to three years, I was just like, just like looking at my power meter, just like staring at that uh, what that number and chasing five and a half watts per kilo. But that's not going to come that way, you know. For sure. All right, guys. Josh, thank you so much. I'm going to link NeoPro in the show notes and everything. Um, and I'll link your your social and stuff so people can get a hold of you with questions and check you out. Um, yeah. And Alex, thank you. And uh, actually, I'm going to chat with you in a couple hours, so. <laughs> yeah again yeah. Uh, all right cool. hey you guys enjoy your day yeah you too mate cheers see you guys thank you see you later bye bye, bye. bye.